Section 1 of Lives of Greek Statesmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Pamela Nagami, M.D. Lives of Greek Statesmen by George William Cox. Solon, Part 1. Solon, the great Athenian lawgiver whose form stands out with marked vividness against the mists which enveloped the earlier history of Athens, was born about a century and a half before the Battle of Marathon. And even at the time of the Battle of Marathon, the written literature of the Greeks was almost in its earliest infancy. There would therefore be nothing to surprise us if his figure appeared as shadowy as that of Dracon, Draco, whose legislation is ascribed to the period of Solon's childhood. And we are thus driven to ask whether the light thrown on his character and his work by the evidence at our command is altogether to be trusted. If we looked only to the confidence with which writers and orators, living many centuries later, spoke of him, we should conclude that they were dealing with matters admitting of little uncertainty or doubt. But on further examination we find that they do not agree among themselves, that some of the descriptions given to his measures are altogether contradictory, and that many changes, and not a few institutions, are ascribed to him, with which it is manifestly impossible that he can have had anything to do. We find also that the assurance of later writers increases with the distance which separates them from his lifetime. How far his work may have been noticed by logographers or analysts earlier than Herodotus we cannot say. In the pages of Herodotus he comes before us chiefly as a philosopher holding sombre views of human life. His legislation he dismisses with a passing reference of his career as a general he takes no notice at all but the shortcomings of herodotus and of others who have written about him are in some measure compensated by solon himself solon was not merely a busy man of the world a general and a statesman he was also as we might be disposed to phrase it a man of letters if we may apply the term to one who adopted certain forms of expression rendered necessary by the absence of writing. It is true that a prose literature of no inconsiderable bulk may be handed down by oral tradition alone. The Vedas, the sacred works of the Hindus, have been written and printed, but to this day they are retained by an effort of memory by thousands who have never seen them in written or printed form and they have been so retained under the threat of a great woe to those who should dare to commit them to parchment or to paper. But the vehicle of verse is obviously an immense help to the retentive powers of the human mind, and among the early Greeks especially it became the means for preserving the collective wisdom of the people. The language lent itself readily to the two or three different rhythms or meters which were employed to express feelings and impulses of extremely different kinds. The hexameter has been supposed by some to be the natural embodiment of the most vehement enthusiasm, while the iambus has been regarded as not less suited naturally for the utterance of biting sarcasm or the keenest resentment. 
but the hexameter which moves with so much rapidity in the iliad adapts itself with equal ease to the more sluggish thought of the didactic philosophy which bears the name of hesiod and the iambic verse was in like manner employed to express the saddest and gentlest as well as the fiercest emotions of the human heart with solon the measures which he used whether elegiac or iambic became simply the natural and the most easy vehicles for the expression of his thought whatever it be his selection was not determined by any desire to win renown as a poet and it never occurred to him to think that a metrical form implied the possession of a vivid and brilliant imagination at times as when he wished to renew the war for the conquest of solomus solon could impart to his verse a character of stirring energy but for the most part his poems are unadorned utterances of thoughts and wishes which he sought to put plainly before his countrymen and of these poems all that have come down to us are a few disjointed fragments such as they are they enable us to form of his career and of the most important political changes effected by him a judgment more correct than any which we could ever have reached from the remarks of writers who from whatever point of view have concerned themselves with his history thus living in an age for which we have no consecutive contemporary records solon presents to us a figure altogether more distinct and real than that of others in earlier athenian and spartan tradition whose names are to us scarcely less familiar than his own the light thrown upon it comes wholly from himself and we may well regret that plutarch who seems to have had before him all of solon's poems has preserved to us only some brief fragments when without overburdening his manuscript he might virtually have left us the whole by birth solon belonged to one of the eupatrid or noble tribes which wielded at this time the whole power of the state and exercised a direct religious ownership over almost all the soil his father exocestides claimed descent from cadrus the last hereditary athenian sovereign whose devotion to his country had in the eyes of his people rendered the kingly office too sacred to be handed on to any mortal successor his mother was a cousin of the mother of pisistratus the future tyrant whose usurpation cast a dark shadow over solon's last days and led directly to the great enterprise of the persian king darius and his son xerxes against the liberties of europe he was born we have said about a century and a half before the battle of marathon but the date of his birth which is ascribed to the year 638 b c cannot be fixed with certainty it was we cannot doubt altogether to his benefit that he could not hope to inherit great wealth either by prodigality or as some expressed it by his generosity his father had much impaired his substance and it became necessary for his son to betake himself to some profitable occupation solon chose that of a trader to foreign countries fragments of his poems show that he had no contempt for riches or for the advantages and pleasures which flow from wealth but they also show that his choice was determined by worthier motives than the mere desire for money 
in his old age he spoke of his past life as one of continued effort to gain a wide knowledge and experience of men and things and although his earlier poems betray an over-keen love of enjoyment his life's work is evidence that his youth and early manhood were marked by at least as much thought for others as for himself his travels and voyages as a trader necessarily spread his reputation far beyond the bounds of his own country his ability as a poet was of itself enough to win for him no inconsiderable fame but his exaltation to a place among the seven sages of hellas belongs to a time subsequent probably to his death the fact that his name appears in all the lists of the seven attests the veneration felt for him throughout the greek world and indeed it is his name which gives some substantial reality to a shifting and shadowy company known under many names and in many lands seven niches were always ready to receive seven men who might rise to preeminent greatness for wisdom or for beauty in any country but these niches are the seven stars of the constellation of the great bear called by the ancient hindus the seven arkshas or shiners who by a slight change of the word became the seven rishis or sages the companions of manu the hindu noah in the ark and who reappear in the seven sons of rhodos and helios rhodes in the sun and the seven chiefs banded against thebes the seven sleepers of ephesus and the seven champions of christendom for solon the period of early manhood had passed away long before any opportunity for conferring marked benefits on his country presented itself to him the narrow limits within which the drama of greek life was commonly played out are especially impressed on us when we remember that this opportunity was furnished by the long struggle carried on by athenians with the town of megara for the possession of the little island of Salamis. this island lies we might almost say barely more than a stone's throw from the entrance to the athenian harbour of piraeus for six years we are told megara resisted the power of athens with so much resolution and success that the defeated athenians passed a law threatening the penalty of death on all who might dare to call for a renewal of the war nor is this all if we are to believe the story told by thucydides of the confederation of the attic demoi or cantons under theseus athens was now able to avail herself of the military aid of all those cantons against the unsupported strength of a single city but in spite of this the fortunes of this megarian war seem to carry us back to an earlier state of things when as in the legend related by herodotus the athenian telos won for himself an undying fame by falling in a fight with the men of Eleusis a town distant only twelve miles from athens it is impossible with such difficulties as these not to feel the uncertainty of the materials with which we are dealing even when the statements made are both plausible and likely the discouragement of his countrymen aroused in solon a feeling only of impatience and indignation there was nothing in the position of megara or in the character of her citizens to show that the real issue of the quarrel had been reached and he resolved to run the risk of defying the recent law 
the story goes that he carefully spread reports of his own madness and that when the people were sufficiently convinced of their truth he rushed into the agora and there taking his stand on the stone whence the public herald or crier announced tidings of importance to the city burst out into a torrent of words thrown into the form of elegiac verse he told them that he had come from the island which they did well to covet charged with the task of convincing his countrymen of their fatal folly in abandoning it to such folk as the men of megara he would rather he said become a citizen of the barren and worthless rock of Folagandras, than keep the name of a citizen of athens so long as athens lay under the shame of surrendering solomus to enemies altogether unworthy of her the poem which expressed his vehement convictions was a hundred lines in length of these only eight have been preserved to us but the fragment assures us of the spirit which pervaded the lost portion and thus we have contemporary evidence of the greatest weight for the motives of one of the chief actors in the opening drama of conquest which in the end made athens an imperial city the athenians stirred by the exhortations of solon resolved to renew the war and their determination to entrust the command of it to solon himself was influenced as we are told chiefly by the future despot pisistratus this is scarcely likely as pisistratus was at this time a mere boy but there are strong reasons for thinking that the chronology of herodotus is for this period mistaken and that he greatly contracted the interval which separated the megarian war from the usurpation of pisistratus that solon commanded the expedition there can be no doubt but if we may give credit to the tradition his generalship was in the main confined to stratagem in answer to his prayer for advice the delphian oracle bade him propitiate the heroes of the island and solon landed by night to offer sacrifice to them secretly on the seashore attracted to the promise that if victorious they should receive grants of land in solomus five hundred athenians were disembarked on a promontory while solon watched for an opportunity of taking the megarian occupants by surprise he had not waited long before a megarian vessel approached to watch the movements of the athenian volunteers this ship solon succeeded in seizing and manning it with an athenian crew he sailed straight to the city while the megarians were busied in repelling the athenian invaders by land not knowing that the vessel was now in other hands the megarian garrison admitted the ship without suspicion and the city was at once taken the conquest of solomus was thus virtually achieved but the megarians who had been suffered to quit the island were not prepared to abandon their claim without further effort the result was another war in which both sides suffered severely at length the megarians consented to submit to the arbitration of sparta the evidence adduced on both sides for the right of possession referred either to the actions of mythical heroes or to local customs each contended that the mode of burial practised by the ancient inhabitants of the island was peculiar to themselves but the athenians maintained that their own rights rested on the cession of solomus to athens by the two sons of the great solomonian hero ajax the son of telamon 
their claim was admitted, and Salamis remained an Athenian possession down to the times of Macedonian supremacy. The fact that Solon, receiving a grant of land, became a Salaminian, may have given rise to the tradition of his birth in the town of Salamis. In the legendary history of his age, Solon next appears as a mover in what is called a sacred war. From whatever causes, Pytho or Delphoi, practically the two places are the same, had become one of the centres of the common religious life in which alone a Greek nation can be said to have existed at all. The Greek life was strictly interpolitical, not national. In theory, each polis or city was an independent unit with all the powers of a sovereign state within its puny area. But although the several portions of the Greek race had no common political existence, they had a common religion. The primitive hearth and altar in every house had been from the first the sacred spot where the members of the family might meet on all occasions of festival, and as it was with the family, so it was with the fratries or clans, and with the aggregates of clans in the bodies known as phyli or tribes. The common feasts of the houses, the clans, and the tribes were marked by games which led to contests for prizes in every branch of Greek culture. From this simple origin grew up those splendid gatherings which made the games of Pytho and Olympia, of Nemea and the Isthmus, famous throughout the whole Greek world. But from first to last the feeling of union thus fostered was religious and religious only, and the societies called into being by the needs of these great festivals professed to act as religious, not as political bodies. Here, as the wealth of the cities which sent these pilgrims to these sanctuaries increased, there grew up temples which became constantly more and more magnificent, and for the preservation of these structures, as well as for the general regulation of the festivals, some of the Greek tribes, professing each to come from a common stock, formed themselves into societies called Amphictyoniae, a word denoting the nearness of their abode to the common shrine. Of the many societies thus formed, a few rose to some prominence, but the one which so surpassed the rest that it became known preeminently as the Amphictyonia, was the union of cities whose representatives met at Delphoi in the spring and at Thermopylae in the autumn. This great council was charged directly with the care of all things relating to the interests of the Delphian temple, and this task might involve in the last resort the duty of making war on those who refused to make amends for injuries done to those interests but it was plain that unless this alliance rested on a thorough national union, and for Greeks such union was impossible, its action would be far more mischievous than beneficial. It might become a mere instrument in the hands of the predominant cities of the League, or if these were so opposed as to preclude all thought of common action, its powers might be, as indeed for the most part they were, left wholly in abeyance. Of the matters which directly concern the interests of the Delphian sanctuary, the safety and comfort of the pilgrims journeying to and from the festivals would be among the most important, and it was on this point that the first serious quarrel arose which chiefly, we are told through the influence of Solon, was forced on to the arbitrament of arms. 
so far as we can weave the popular traditions into a connected narrative it would seem that within a few miles of the sanctuary on the northern side of the corinthian gulf there was a port under mount kirphus and an island city on the mouth of the river pleistos the city and port being both known as Crissa, or the former as Cura, and the latter as Crissa. As time went on, the seaport rose in importance and wealth. While the men in Crissa were deprived of the guardianship of the temple by the Delphians, who had also left them behind in the race for riches, availing themselves of their position, the people of the harbor exacted heavy tolls from the pilgrims and were guilty of worse wrongdoing. It was at this juncture that Solon, as the story goes, urged the Amphictyonic council to interfere. Roused by his zeal, they declared war against the people of the port, and in the enforcement of their ban, the Athenians were supported not only by the Sicyonians under Cleisthenes, but by the Thessalians as well as the neighboring Phocian tribes. In spite of all the efforts of this great confederacy, the men of Cira prolonged their resistance for ten years. At the end of this time their power was exhausted, and after vain efforts to hold out a while longer on the heights of Kirphus, they saw their town destroyed or left to serve merely as a landing place. By a decree of the council their territory was consecrated to the Delphian god, in other words, it became the property of the citizens of Delphoi, who thus became masters of a seaboard. The land so handed over to the Delphian or Pythian god was never to be touched again by a plough, but to serve as a pasturage for cattle, an arrangement not inconvenient for those who were anxious chiefly to provide an abundant supply of victims for the temple offerings. End of section 1. Section 2 of Lives of Greek Statesmen by George William Cox. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Solon, Part 2. The only fact which at the utmost we can gather from this story is the gradual aggrandizement of the Delphians at the expense of their neighbors on the sea coast. But for all the incidents of the narrative, we are altogether without any adequate evidence. We cannot suppose that the inhabitants of one solitary and insignificant town would have resisted for ten years the combined forces of Athenians, Sicyonians, Thessalians, and Phocians. But these ten years are the ten years of the Trojan War, or of the return of the heroes from Troy. Nor is there anything very astonishing, after all, in the circumstance that after the war we hear of Delphians rather than Chrysaeans as connected with the shrine of Apollon, since in the so-called Homeric hymn to that god there is but the faintest shade of difference between Chrysa and Delphoi. Here, too, as in the struggle for the acquisition of Salamis, the issue is said to have been determined by a trick or stratagem of Solon. In this case, the method adopted by him is little to his credit. He is said to have caused the death of thousands of the enemy by poisoning the waters of the river Pleistos. The story comes to us from Posanius, 
a writer who lived eight centuries after the athenian lawgiver but we need not lay stress on this fact in order to vindicate solon's fame posanius accepts the geography of these places indicated in the hymn to apollon strabo rejects it nay we are told that there were two sacred wars and thus we are left at a loss to know to which of the two wars any given incident may belong by the order Iskines, the Curians are associated with the Acragalidae as tribes beyond measure impious, but we hear of the Acragalidae nowhere else, and we are thus none the wiser for the comparison. In short, we are dealing with the traditions of a war which may have taken place, but of which, if it ever did take place, we cannot now be said to have any knowledge whatever from these traditions which present solon to us chiefly in the character of a cunning trickster aiming at results of doubtful value we are carried to others in which we find ourselves in a certain extent on firmer ground because we have again over some portions of it the guidance of solon himself that he was profoundly impressed by the evils which were hindering the growth of the athenian people there is no question and it is at the least possible that he may have been nerved to his efforts as a reformer by the history or the legends of the legislation of an earlier athenian lawgiver the name of dracon draco is associated generally with the idea of severity carried to a point which admits of no excess he insisted we are told that the least offences deserved death and that he could devise no greater punishment for the worst but this saying is inconsistent with such descriptions as we have of his legislation if indeed we can speak of a draconian legislation when aristotle asserts that he made no change in the constitution some accordingly have supposed that dracon was simply one of the thesmothetai or notaries employed to reduce to writing ordinances already in force we know nothing whatever of his life and his name bears a suspicious likeness to that of other legislators for whom no one ventures to claim a historical character the hindu manu differs from the cretan minos only in some incidents of a career which is altogether mythical as the spartan lycurgus is strictly the light-bringer who scatters the darkness of license and disorder so in the true meaning of the word dracon is the keen-sighted being who sees and promotes the true interests of his people he is thus identical with the locrian zaloikos who may or may not belong to a somewhat later age his name therefore thrusts him back into the class of strictly mythical personages like herosphorus or like asterodia who journeys across the heaven with her attendant stars but if we turn to the accounts given of the draconian laws we find that so far as they changed anything at all they were movements manifestly in the direction of greater laxity and mercy down to the time whatever this may have been of the draconian reforms the ancient religious powers of the fathers of the family and subsequently of the kings were exercised by the council of the areopagus or hill of Ares, mars this council is said to have been first constituted under solon 
but the statement refers chiefly to the name and proves only that thus far it had had no distinctive title but was known preeminently as the council or boule the powers of this assembly rested strictly on a religious basis and were exercised with an impartial and inflexible severity among the crimes which were accounted as offences against the gods and so came under the jurisdiction of the council was homicide but it was not competent for the court to draw distinctions between the guilt of one act of homicide and that of another the one penalty of death must be passed upon all who were found guilty of having shed blood whether the accused might plead accident as a ground for acquittal or urge provocation as a palliation of his offence the distinctions demanded by the principles of equity were drawn we are told by dracon when he ordained that the new court of the ephetai consisting of fifty-one members should sit in different places to adjudicate in different cases of homicide if the criminal alleged accident he was to be tried at the spot known as the palladian if he pleaded provocation he was to appear at the delphinian or consecrated ground of apollon and artemis a time of great depression if not of general misery for the athenian people is indicated by the traditions of plague and pestilence which followed the breach of faith shown by the alcmyonid tribe towards chilon and his followers after their unsuccessful attempt to seize the acropolis and as it was said to set up a tyranny about 620 b c following the advice of the delphian oracle the athenians invited epimenides from crete to undertake the task of purification which was duly accomplished by the performance of certain strange and mysterious rites there is no need to question the reality of this fact or the existence of epimenides himself but we cannot advance further the name of epimenides is found in some as that of solon is seen in all of the lists of the seven sages but epimenides is known chiefly for his wonderful sleep of fifty-seven years and he thus takes his place in the great company of sleepers which numbers in its ranks many historical personages such as charles the great sebastian of portugal and boabdil of granada with others who seem to belong chiefly to the cloudland like olgor the dane the british arthur the tells of rutli tannhuser and thomas of erkeldoon whatever may have been the results produced by the rites of epimenides they seem to have had no effect on the fortunes of the inhabitants of athens generally the time was one of those in which the evils of an old order of things came to be felt more and more as intolerable burdens and it was to the removal or the lessening of burdens admitted to be well-nigh past bearing that solon now resolutely applied himself the draconian changes had modified the administration of the law of homicide they had not touched the intestine disorders of the country obviously the only points of real importance in the question are the causes and the nature of these dissensions and it is on these points that we must feel the inadequacy of our information but here also we have happily the words of solon himself to help us they have come down to us it is true only in fragments 
but they profess to describe the state of things which he found at the beginning of his work and the changes which he had effected on its completion and the questions which we have to answer turn on the meaning of the terms which he employs we might be tempted to think that the most natural meaning would be nearest to the meaning of solon himself but we have to remember that many of his terms were in familiar use many centuries later among writers and speakers who necessarily attach to them a very different meaning and who do not hesitate to transfer to the times of solon financial and social problems which were in many instances the product only of their own from the words of solon we learn two facts which he states with the utmost clearness the one is that the men who exercised power in the state were guilty of gross injustice and of violent robberies among themselves the second is that of the poor many were in chains and had been sold away even into foreign slavery it is on this latter fact and on the evils implied in it and bound up with it that solon lays most stress he declares with vehement earnestness that the state of things so brought about must eat away and destroy the life of a state and that he had applied to it the only practical remedies addressing the black earth gay malina in a personal appeal he speaks indignantly of the earth itself as having been in some way enslaved and as having been now by himself freed by the removal of boundary marks which had been fixed in many places he had thus got rid of what seemed to him one crying wrong and he had lessened its disastrous consequences by releasing from captivity and restoring to their ancient homes many who had been sold into foreign slavery as well as by raising to the condition of freemen those who had on attic soil been reduced to slavery and trembled before their despots the whole debate turns beyond doubt on the meaning of the several terms found in these fragments it is possible that the remainder of the text if it had been preserved might have given their true meaning with a precision not to be questioned but it is not surprising that in the course of ages opinions more or less inconsistent and contradictory should have sprung up about them and that these opinions should in varying measure have been adopted by modern historians the differences in the views of recent writers depend much on the weight which they assign to the authority of plutarch by those who regard his representations as in the main trustworthy it has been urged that the system which tended to reduce english freemen to villainage before or after the norman conquest was in the days of solon converting the attic peasants into slaves if they failed to pay their rent or to furnish the quota of produce which stood in the place of rent the deficiency was reckoned as a debt for which they were allowed by law to pledge their own bodies or the bodies of their sisters or their children the real prosperity of the country was much hindered we are told by the fact that the smaller tenures were heavily mortgaged but this it is urged was as nothing compared with the practice which had for its end the establishment and extension of a servile class by the offer of loans which the lender knew would never be repaid in money and for which he sought no other security than the bodies of the borrowers 
in such a state of things a legislator who had the welfare of the people at heart could see only a plague to be suppressed at all hazards the choice lay between two evils on the one side the debts incurred by the tenants or producers whether these be called thetes or by any other name were legitimate debts to the recovery of which the lenders were entitled and on the other side the avoidance of all injustice or hardship to the latter would involve in the long run the destruction of the whole people the spread of discontent had alarmed the eupatrid or ruling class and when solon was in his year of archonship about 594 bc invested with something like dictatorial authority he used it not like the luckless chylon of an earlier or the successful pisistratus of a later day to make himself a despot but to bring the mischief summarily to an end by introducing his celebrated measure known as the seisachthea or removal of burdens a measure which it is said annulled all mortgages on lands in attica restored to freedom all debtors who had been reduced to slavery provided the means for recovering and ransoming such as had been sold to foreign masters and rendered a fresh repetition of the old evils impossible by prohibiting all security for loans on the bodies of the borrower or his kinsfolk the losses of the lenders who may themselves have been indebted to others were we are finally told in some measure lessened or compensated by a depreciation of the currency and the justification of all these stringent and perhaps arbitrary provisions was furnished by their complete success the public credit was not shaken and the need was never again felt for debasing the money standard or of repudiating a debt but a careful consideration of the matter will show that the picture thus drawn is to say the least open to criticism it implies the existence in solon's day of the practice of mortgaging land and the existence also of a class if not of two classes of money-lenders distinct from the owners of the soil the question is thus complicated with difficulties for which there seems to be no adequate solution to roman history it is useless to look with any hope of receiving light on these obscure and perplexing subjects pictures of social misery fully as great as that of the poor in the days of solon may be found in the roman traditions down to the time of the decum viro legislation but the causes and extent of the financial embarrassments of the roman plebs or commons have baffled the researches of modern inquirers when however the distress of the athenian agriculturists is definitely ascribed to debts secured by mortgage the objection at once suggests itself that the security of the mortgage in modern usage can be given only by the owner of the soil and that the distressed men of attica were not the owners of land but only cultivators the testimony of plutarch can have no value except in so far as it gives faithfully the traditions which he had received and these traditions in their turn can have weight only in so far as they really represent the state of things with which solon had to deal later writers would be under an almost invincible temptation to introduce into their narrative the ideas of later ages and these ideas might be so mingled up with older matter 
that of two consecutive sentences one might be true and the other altogether false it is certain however that plutarch regarded the distress in solon's day as caused chiefly by the conditions of land tenure imposed on the cultivators these peasants or thetes as they were called were known also as hectomorioi from the fact that they paid to the owner or as some have thought retained for themselves one-sixth portion of the produce of the soil the latter condition would we might suppose make it impossible for the cultivator to subsist at all but the doubt betrays the scantiness of the knowledge which we have of these hectomorians all that is clear is that they were not regarded by plutarch as proprietors we cannot say for certain that he was speaking of the same class when he mentions those who pledge their persons for the repayment of debts or that he took the danistai or money-lenders or usurers to be landlords and landlords only but when we look more closely to the facts of the early social history of athens as far as they are known to us at all we find ourselves driven to ascertain if it be possible whether the more modern idea of mortgage was then known and whether there existed at that time a class of professed money-lenders but if the lenders were landowners lending money to their own tenants we can only wonder at the superfluity of the loan when according to the story the failure of the tenant to yield the stipulated portion of the produce involved in itself the forfeiture of his freedom if on the other hand we suppose that the landowners and the money-lenders were not the same persons can we for a moment doubt that the hectamorians would never have been allowed by the landowners to pledge their persons the value of which might far exceed the amount of their debt to professed usurers such a course would tend directly to defraud the landlord who would have a paramount claim on the bodies of the tenants if they failed to pay their produce we may if we please assume that there were two classes of men indebted to two classes of creditors the thetes or hectamorians who were pledged to their own landlords and the free proprietors of small estates who were pledged to professed usurers but if we do so we shall be multiplying gratuitous hypotheses which it will be difficult to reconcile with the views whether of plutarch or of any one else but solon tells us plainly that he removed certain boundary pillars from the land what then were these landmarks we have no evidence which in the least justifies the supposition that they were mortgage pillars inscribed with the name of the lender and the amount of the loan nor have we any reason for asserting that they exhibited any inscription at all why then should we maintain that they were anything more than or anything different from what solon says they were he speaks simply of landmarks or boundaries horoi and we know that not merely in attica or in latium but throughout the aryan world or even beyond its limits the land was marked off by boundary stones to break or remove which was nothing less than sacrilege these stones were the marks of absolute and exclusive possession by the father of the family each household at the first had had its special boundary god this god being doubtless the reputed founder of the house 
that it was only through the lapse of ages that these special boundary gods gave place to a common deity which guarded the limits of the whole community in this later stage the roman terminus we are told was a power too mighty to be assailed even by the capitoline jupiter but all that this myth proves to us is the fact that the notion of which terminus was an embodiment was far older than the religion of which jupiter the greek zeus pater the common father or lord was the necessary expression in every arian society we have thus at starting a number of families each standing wholly by itself and only accidentally connected with each other worshipping each its own deity and marking off the domain of that deity by inviolable boundaries while it owned no obedience to any law which could extend its protection to aliens it is quite clear that such are not the conditions or materials which the state as an aggregate of houses clans and tribes would ever have chosen for the accomplishment of its work but unsuitable though they might be they must be rough-hewn to serve the wider purposes of the state and the history of the greek and latin tribes pre-eminently is the history of efforts to do away with distinctions on which their progenitors had insisted as indispensable we have no warrant therefore for supposing that the boundary marks spoken of by solon were anything but the landmarks of this primitive condition of society they represented we cannot doubt those ancient patriarchal rites which received their whole sanction from religion this stage in the growth of the human mind finds its expression in such laws as those which are attributed to the corinthian phidon and which forbid any change whatever in the number of families or properties in attica then as elsewhere the eupatrids or lords of the free households were still the owners of almost all the land and these heads of families might in the strictest sense be termed despots whose trembling dependents might be suffered to draw their livelihood from the soil on condition of paying to the owner a certain portion of the produce it is more than likely that even this fixed payment marks a step forward in the condition of the labourer who had started without even this poor semblance of right for a mere semblance it was after all if he could comply with the terms imposed on him he was nominally free but his real state was in no way changed the lord needed not to restrict himself to the sixth portion of the produce and a bad season might leave the peasant unable to pay even this sixth part in either case he fell back into the servile state from which he had never been legally set free End of section two section three of lives of greek statesmen by george william cox this librivox recording is in the public domain read by pamela nagami solon part three while things continued thus solon could say with perfect truth that the land itself was enslaved we have no warrant for asserting the existence at this time of any class of small proprietors but if such a class existed they would be powerless against the eupatrid landowners and would be liable to the same accidents 
which might at any moment make the client once more a slave if this be at all a true picture of the condition of attica in the days of solon things it is clear could not go on indefinitely as they were the condition of the hectomorian was probably a stage far in advance of that from which he had started but it was certain that the man who had risen thus far would never rest content without guarantees of law even for the slender rights which he had acquired he could not consent to remain at the mercy and caprice of a despot who might on the occurrence of any accident as for instance that of a bad season sell him into foreign slavery under such circumstances the cultivator of the soil might become a free owner or he might fall back into his original servitude hence then solon had abundant materials for the measures of relief which he contemplated and the course which he took seems to have been precisely that which is apparently indicated by his words from all lands occupied by cultivators on condition of paying a portion of the produce to the owner he removed the pillars which marked the religious ownership of the eupatridae at the same time he lightened the burdens of the cultivators by lessening the amount of produce or of money which henceforth took the shape of a rent by these measures a body of free labourers was not so much relieved of a heavy pressure as for the first time called into being beyond this there is nothing in the words of solon himself which would lead to the conclusion that he debased the coinage and beyond the mere assertion of this debasement there is little agreement between ancient and modern writers while some have contended that solon altered the weights and measures as well as debased the coinage others have held that his work did not go beyond the latter change but in truth when we go beyond the language of the lawgiver himself we plunge into a sea of conjectures the conjectures may be more or less ingenious and some credit for ingenuity must be allowed to the hypothesis of Androtion that while solon lowered the rate of interest and depreciated the currency about twenty-seven per cent he left the letter of the contracts untouched according to this supposition one hundred drachmas in the new currency contained the same amount of silver with seventy-three drachmas of the old standard and thus a hundred drachmas of the old standard would extinguish a debt of one hundred and thirty-eight drachmas according to the new the fact that solon conferred a permanent financial benefit on the cultivators of the soil is beyond question this he tells us himself but of the details of the measure we have no positive knowledge and the idea that he lowered the currency may be the growth of a much later age it is not merely likely but in some instances it is certain that in these accounts of the relations of debtors with creditors at the time of the seisachthea the more modern writers transferred to the athens of solon notions belonging to a later time and having but the faintest comprehension of the tremendous power exercised by the ancient lords of the soil in their religious ownership concluded that the relief which solon gave was chiefly through the abolition or the lessening of debts what solon speaks of is rather a struggle between slavery and freedom 
and the tradition that it was never again found necessary to modify contracts or to debase the currency is probably nothing more than a later mode of asserting that his work whatever it may have been was done effectually it is scarcely necessary to say that if this interpretation of the Seisachthea, warranted and indeed enforced as it is by the words of solon himself be correct that measure is removed from all direct connection with the questions of loans and usury in ancient or modern times the whole usage of borrowing and lending must rest on the supposition that the transaction is advantageous on both sides except on this supposition it is impossible to justify the demand of interest for money lent and as no man is bound to lend his money for nothing the prohibition to receive interest becomes a virtual prohibition of all borrowing and lending amongst ourselves the usage of loans is found to be a benefit on both sides and the taking of usury to an amount representing this benefit is regarded as perfectly justifiable and right in the days of plato and even of cicero this was not so distinctly seen and to them therefore the taking of money seemed either a matter of doubtful morality or an act utterly immoral the objection was likely to be felt more strongly by thinkers than by those who had practical experience of the working of the system and accordingly it was urged by philosophers long after the popular feeling on the subject had died away to solon however as he carried out his reforms for the benefit of the peasants it became clear that there remained before him a task not less important which he had not yet touched he had in his own words emancipated the soil or a large portion of it but he had not disturbed the principle of religious association on which the ancient tribes based their right nor had he any wish to disturb it now such a course might have brought with it dangers which even solon could not venture to face but if a reform in this direction was impracticable it became the more necessary to devise some other means for welding together into one mass the discordant elements of athenian society as he found it in his own time the greater part of the population of attica was not included in any tribe in other words it was absolutely excluded from all share in the work of government it could hope for no advancement it was debarred from acquiring any privileges if therefore there was to be any political union of the eupatrids with the class which had struggled into freedom beyond the sacred limits of their order it must be brought about by a classification which should have nothing to do with affinities of blood and therefore nothing to do with religion such a classification could be based only on property and the principle they introduced was termed the timocratic by this system eligibility to public offices in the state was made to depend on the possession of a certain income measured according to the value of corn the first class consisted of men whose annual income was equal to five hundred medimnoi about seven hundred imperial bushels of corn 
the second of those who had from eight hundred to five hundred medimnoi and who as being rich enough to serve as horsemen were known as hippeis or knights the third of those who possessed from two hundred to eight hundred and who as owning a team of oxen were called zoigatai all those classes paid a graduated income tax called asphora on a capital rated at twelve times the annual income for members of the first class at ten times for those of the second and at five times for those of the third all citizens whose incomes fell short of two hundred drachmas or medimnoi were placed in a fourth class which as including and not as consisting only of the thetes and hectamorians relieved by solon was known as the thetic this class which was free from all direct taxation was necessarily the largest in the state they could not be called on to discharge the costly and unpaid public services known as liturgiae or liturgies and in war they served only as light-armed infantry or in armour provided for them by the state at the same time they were declared ineligible to all public offices the archonship and all military commands were now open only to members of the first class but certain minor offices might be held by those of the second and third classes who were required respectively to serve at their own expense as horsemen and as heavy-armed infantry the practical results of this constitution were secured solely by a restriction of privilege for the filling of public offices those citizens who were not members of tribes remained just as they had been before but those members of tribes who had not the income of the first class could no longer be archons or take the command of armies in the field from their own point of view these poorer eupatrids or tribesmen were now excluded from offices and honours which they regarded as their rightful and inalienable inheritance the spell of the ancient despotism of religion and blood was thus broken and a further democratic element was introduced by the law which left the election of the archons to the general council of the whole body of citizens known as the heliaia in which not merely the members of the first three classes but as the eupatrids styled them the rabble of the fourth class had their place the same law went even further for it made the archons directly responsible to the public assembly and liable to impeachment by it in case of misbehaviour at the end of their term of office the power of this public assembly was still further strengthened by the institution which is also ascribed to solon of a second council called the probuloitic council of the four hundred as being charged chiefly with the preparation or matters to be brought before the general assembly and the summoning and management of its meetings the members of this council of four hundred were to be elected by the whole people from members of the first class of citizens these restrictions on eupatrid privilege widely extended the area of political power the great majority of citizens were still ineligible for office but in the election of the chief magistrates their votes would check or neutralize that of the haughtiest of the tribesmen and even the archons dared not to set too little store by an authority to which they were amenable and a tribunal before which they must appear 
on the whole the changes of solon involved a decided step towards the growth of commonalty but the progress made was very slow and perhaps on this account more sure the eupatrids still retained substantial power during their year of office the archons who must be tribesmen and therefore eupatrids were still absolute judges from whom there was no appeal and the council of the areopagus was strengthened by a censorial jurisdiction extended to the punishment of vice as distinguished from crime like the archons the members of this council must be tribesmen and the same rule applied to the probuloidic council of four hundred that is of one hundred for each of the four tribes hence even if they belong to the first class or pentacosio metemnoi the non-tribal citizens stood politically on a level not higher than that of the fourth or thetic class they contributed in larger measure to the public revenue and unless account be taken of the insignificant offices which they might fill this was all no one who did not possess the religious title could hold the great offices and thus solon left the constitution as he found it practically oligarchic his reforms appeased for a while the popular discontent but the time which preceded the usurpation of pisistratus was clearly one of great agitation of a kind which showed that the archons were little able to check the wealthy nobles and their adherents although they might be strong enough to keep down the poorer citizens in times long subsequent to those of solon the people exercised their supreme power through the judicial courts known as the dicasteria but the members of these courts worked on a system of fixed payment of which in these earlier days we hear nothing and therefore we need have no hesitation in saying that the establishment of these courts is not among the works which can with any reason be attributed to solon still more if they could be so ascribed we should be unable to explain the strenuous opposition made to all democratic reforms during the whole period between the persian and the peloponnesian wars to solon apart from the legislation involved in accomplishing the chief task of his life are referred a large number of laws of a character so miscellaneous that this circumstance alone might lead us to question the accuracy of the tradition among these one of the most prominent is the law prohibiting the exportation of all produce from athenian territory except olive oil this law would seem designed to attract to athens as much as possible the labour of skilled artisans by encouraging manufactures rather than agriculture on a soil naturally thin and poor regarded in this light the law is noteworthy as showing not merely a sound appreciation of the best interests of such a country as attica but a marked opposition to the prevailing sentiment of the hellenic world which branded the sedentary life of the artisan as beneath the dignity of the free citizen at sparta and perhaps not at sparta only this sentiment placing a stigma on agriculture itself which to cicero appeared the highest and the most honourable of callings reserved its approval for laborious military idleness to this feeling the current of opinion at athens becomes as time goes on more and more steadily opposed until from the lips of pericles we have the emphatic statement that no man needed to feel ashamed in confessing the fact of his poverty 
the real disgrace lying in the absence of strenuous efforts to escape from it another law for which the authority of solon is with great likelihood claimed invokes disgrace on those citizens who in the time of sedition should hold aloof from all share in the contest it is in fact rather a curse than a law and it seems to be in complete antagonism with the oath by which after the subsequent reforms of cleisthenes each citizen bound himself to support the existing democracy against all who might attempt to overthrow it this apparent opposition is however sufficiently explained if we note the difference of circumstances in the two periods in the time of solon the uninterrupted maintenance of public order was in the infancy of constitutional growth a much more important matter than adherence to a particular form of polity he had himself introduced a modified oligarchy in place of this the choice lay between an irresponsible despotism and anarchy and the need of cutting the time of mere confusion as short as possible made it in solon's belief the duty of every citizen to throw his sword into the scale on one side or the other the consciousness that the imprecation of solon might determine the action of a large number of the citizens would be a strong discouragement to the man who might aim at making himself a tyrant the great work of solon was now done according to the popular tradition his career closed as it began with a series of wanderings in foreign lands in his earlier days he had travelled as a trader he travelled now as we are told chiefly because he could devise no better means for ensuring the continuance of the social and political order of which he had been the founder the fact that he had been enabled to make certain changes was in itself no surety that others might not undo them or that he might not be induced to undo them himself he therefore bound the athenians we are told by solemn oaths that for ten years they would suffer no change to be made in his laws and then to make it impossible that any changes should come from himself he departed on his long pilgrimage that at some time or other he visited egypt and cyprus his own words tell us but they do not enable us to fix the time he can scarcely have gone to egypt while amasis was king for the reign of amasis began at least a generation after the legislation of solon nor have we any more adequate reasons for thinking that he was at sardis during the reign of croesus the fall of the lydian monarchy belongs to a time later by half a century than the legislation of solon and it is certain that in the belief of herodotus his visit to the lydian court took place only six or seven years before the great catastrophe the story as told by herodotus forms one of the most beautiful didactic legends of the ancient world and it can be fitly told only in his own way the great desire of the lydian king was to obtain from the great athenian lawgiver and philosopher an attestation to his own surpassing wealth and happiness and this attestation he thought that he should best attain by asking him if he had ever known a man whom he could call happy in all things solon said that he had and named the athenian telos turning sharply on him croesus asked his reason for naming this man and solon answered because telos lived when things went well with the city 
and his own children were good and fair, and he saw these children springing up and prospering steadily, and also because, after such a life, he died gloriously, for there was a battle between the men of Athens and the men of Eleusis, and he came to the aid of the Athenians, and having put the enemy to flight, died nobly, and the people buried him on the ground where he fell and honoured him greatly. Thinking that in any case he must rank next to Telos, Croesus put the question, and Solon named Cleobus and Biton, adding that these men lived in Argos, rich in goods and strong in body. It chanced, he said, that there was a feast held in honour of Hera, but the oxen were not at hand to take their mother to the temple, so they placed her in the chariot, and drew it hither over forty and five furlongs, and the people at the feast marvelled at their strength, and held their mother happy that she had such children. Then she stood up before the shrine of Hera, and prayed the goddess to give to her children the happiest thing which mortal man may have. So the young men lay down there in the temple, for they were weary, and fell asleep, and died. And thus Hera showed that death is better than life, and that there can be no better gift for man than to die happily. Vexed and angered by this second disappointment, Croesus expressed his indignation that Solon had not thought him equal even to men of low estate. Solon's answer was ready. Dost thou ask me, who know that the gods are full of jealousy, about the happiness of man? In a long life there is much to be seen and suffered from, which man would willingly turn aside and in his threescore and ten years there is not one single day which brings not with it some change or turn of things, so that a man in all his life on earth has no sure abiding. And now, O king, thou art rich and wealthy, and all things thus far have prospered to thy hands. But happy I may not call thee until I learn that thy life has been happily ended, for the rich man is not wealthier than he who has only whereby he may live, unless he keeps all his wealth till the hour of his death. Many a rich man is very wretched, and many in humble estate have good fortune. So then in the case of all, we must wait till they die, for the sum of human happiness is when a man is fair in person, and sound in wind and limb, when no sickness vexes him, and no evil chance annoys him, and when his children grow up fair and strong. But all these things together never fall to the lot of any one man, and he who has had most of them, and goes down to the grave yet having them, best deserves the name of happy. But everywhere we must look to the end, for the stateliest tree is often torn up by the roots, while yet it stands forth in the fullness of its beauty. So having spoken, Solon departed, leaving Croesus sorely wroth, because he had thought so little of his wealth, his treasures, and his pomp. But the dark shadow soon fell on his house, and when his son Attis the brave and fair was smitten unwittingly by the spear of the Phrygian Adrastos, and when his dream of happiness was thus broken and ended, Croesus called to mind the words of the Athenian sage, and confessed in bitter anguish that they were true. Once again, when after the fall of Sardis, Croesus stood on the funeral pyre, which we are told was to consume him along with the other victims chosen by the Persian conqueror to share his fate, 
the memory of his past happiness and the overwhelming sense of the misery which had followed it called from him the cry thrice repeated solon 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 the explanation of this cry given at the request of the persian king drew from cyrus an order that croesus should be taken from the pyre but his command came too late the flames were curling round the wood and croesus could only invoke the aid of apollon who sent a fierce rain which put out the fire before it could touch him the lydian king in his turn lived to be the friend and counsellor of his conqueror reading him lessons not unlike those which he had learnt from the great athenian lawgiver with this beautiful story we are concerned only in so far as it belongs to the career of solon and we have seen that chronologically it cannot be made to fit in with the time of his legislation it is well to see further that in all its details the drama of the life of croesus belongs to the region of cloudland from beginning to end the story is made to justify the religious philosophy of the age and this didactic purpose not less than the materials of the tale strips it of all historical character the candid but artless remark of herodotus that until croesus was actually taken no one had paid the least attention to the plain warning that the fifth sovereign of his dynasty should atone for the iniquity of the founder proves at the least that the prediction grew up after the catastrophe even if it proves no more and the fabrication of one prophecy brings the rest under the same suspicion before solon returned to athens the political tide was running in a different direction in place of tribes we hear now of what are called factions bearing severally the names of pedioi periloi and hypericreoi and denoting the men of the plains of the sea coast and of the hills as to the nature of this division we cannot speak positively the names as connected with stories of the intestine disputes preceding and following the salonian legislation may be nothing more than mere titles of factions but some whose judgment should carry weight have discovered in them a triple division answering to the romnes titianes and luceres of the romans if it be so it must be admitted that the correspondence exists along with points of difference almost irreconcilable if we follow the tradition adopted by herodotus these parties or factions in the later years of solon had each its own separate head the padiaeans or as we may perhaps call them the eupatrid landowners of the plain were ranged under lycurgus the parolians or men of the coast had sided with the alcmyonid megacles the men of the hills were gathered under the banner of pisistratus who according to an unlikely tradition already noticed had been mainly instrumental in obtaining for solon the command in the renewed struggles with the megarians for salamis in the strife now impending solon it is said foresaw that pisistratus must be the conqueror but his efforts to stir up the athenians to a resolute combination against the tyranny with which they were threatened proved ineffectual his curse or imprecation remained a dead letter but he bravely discharged his duty to the end standing in his armour at the door of his house he replied we are told to those who asked on what he relied to save himself from the vengeance of his enemies 
on my old age. With all the force of his eloquence, he protested against the granting of any guard to Pisistratus, and if his advice had been followed, the usurpation in all likelihood would never have been achieved. The guard was granted, and the Acropolis was seized. But Pisistratus, as the story goes, did Solon no harm, and the man who had done more than any who had gone before him to make his country free died in peace circa 558 B.C., full of years, with a fame incomparably the more pure because he had to face and to struggle with the temptations involved in the possession of virtually absolute power with which he had been entrusted in his year of archonship, circa 594 B.C. His opportunities at that time for making himself master of the state were greater than any which fell to the lot, even of Pisistratus. But we have no reason for supposing that he wavered for an instant in his rejection of them. He sought no reward, but he obtained one in a reputation not altogether unlike that of the English Alfred the Great. End of section 3section four of lives of greek statesmen by george william cox this librivox recording is in the public domain read by pamela nagami pisistratus part one an examination of the earliest conditions of arian society can leave us in no doubt that the theory of kingship in any shape was a secondary and a comparatively late growth at the outset we have the isolated family for which the most vivid image is that of the beast with its mate and its cubs in its den over which the lord of the den reigns supreme the difference between the brute and the human habitation lay not so much in the absolute power exercised by the master as in the idea of an existence continued after death an idea which could be possessed only by the human family for the latter the master or founder remained the living God, with whom they were united in a strictly religious bond. In his activity they were active, and his strength could and must be supported by the same nourishment which preserved their own. Hence with him they feasted in their annual sacrifices, and his representative became also the priest, in whose ministrations none except those who were sprung from the same stock could have part a hundred such families might start independently and with fair equality in the race and struggle for existence but it was by no means likely that all would maintain the position with which they started it was at any time open to the most powerful among them to combine for the purpose of putting down the rest and this conquest would be really the establishment of an oligarchy the members of which were theoretically at least on a level. Their object would be necessarily the strengthening of their order rather than the securing of predominance of any one at the expense of the rest. But this further object might in course of time present itself to any one of them as an end to be aimed at, and if the enterprise succeeded, such an one would become a king, and he would become so precisely and only because he represented the common stock from which all over whom he ruled were by actual kinship sprung 
nay more he would we cannot doubt describe himself as entitled to the rights of royalty because he represented the common ancestor more strictly and thoroughly than anyone else could pretend to do and so he became king not as an alien conqueror for this would be practically a contradiction in terms but because the other masters of families at whose expense he had risen agreed to waive to him the exercise of some of the rights which all claimed as sovereign chiefs over their individual families we are thus prepared for the course which events would follow on the decay of this kingship which had itself been a comparatively late development at least in hellas the process would in fact practically reverse the order of things which had led to its growth and establishment the royal authority had risen at the expense of a number of chiefs all of course eupatrids or nobles and all also in theory gamoroi or owners of land which they held by a strictly religious title but the natural growth of population would increase the number of younger sons with their families who would not be owners of lands but who would nevertheless be called gamoroi in other words a great patrician order would be thus formed and it would continue to exist under a dynasty of kings as it had existed before only with some of its powers shorn and some of its rights in abeyance it is clear that the strength of the kings must depend on that of the order from which they had sprung if this order was jealous of its privileges and if each house had preserved substantially its own independence and its authority over its subjects the elements of a peaceable revolution were always ready to be called into activity and the kingship might pass away as it might also have sprung up almost without a struggle the abolition of royalty would in fact be simply a return to the earliest form of government the great chiefs would resume their full rights of which they had conceded or been compelled to yield a portion to the king and the whole machinery of oligarchical government would again be set in motion this we find from such traditions as have come down to us to have been the general course of political development in the greek cities in some instances the change is accompanied by a certain amount of convulsion and violence in others as at athens where the kings it would seem had been guiltless of much active wrong it was accomplished with perfect harmony the self-devotion of cadras the last athenian king if it be a fact justified the assertion that the office of king was too sacred to be filled by any mortal man and the friendly spirit in which the change was made was shown by electing for his life the heir of the last king as the chief magistrate or archon of the city the change might appear slight but in fact it was vast the man who would have been king was now a magistrate and nothing more again the term of office might be shortened as we are told that after the death of the first archon it was shortened first to ten years and then to one and beyond this he was responsible for the exercise of his power to those who elected him but we should be reckoning without the evidence if we were to suppose that oligarchies thus peacefully set up had before them a tranquil future resting on the firm administration of constitutional law 
there were in almost every case sunken rocks and reefs on which these exclusive and imperious societies were apt to make shipwreck the eupatrid order remained stationary in its numbers or increased slowly or even became less numerous while beyond the charmed circle there lay a great multitude to which a variety of causes were constantly bringing fresh strength it is true that the land-owning nobles denied that they owed any duties to this mass of men whom they regarded as aliens in blood and therefore in religion and it is also true that for these the change from kingship to oligarchy had brought no benefit whatever but just in these two facts lay the real dangers which threatened the existence of the oligarchic governments these close and exclusive bodies are necessarily liable in an extreme degree to the plagues of jealousy and dissension and divergence of interest is sure to create a minority which if it cannot gain its own ends may yet hamper the movements of others for the members of this minority the temptation to subvert the existing state of things by means of the unfranchised multitude would be a strong one nor can we perhaps say with fairness that the alliance was on their side always selfish and dishonourable men act commonly on curiously complicated motives and it is quite possible that a eupatrid courting the favour of the people might to some extent be acting conscientiously he might have a purely selfish motive in promising them justice but he might also be honestly convinced of his being able to apply remedies for some of the wrongs from which they were suffering in many cases an ambitious and discontented member of the ruling class might thus succeed in making himself absolute and his task might be rendered easier if he could represent himself as the linear heir of the old kings many circumstances might work in his favour a patrician invested as isimnites or under any other dictatorial title with unusual powers might refuse to return to his private station and even hand on his powers to his son more commonly the way toward the establishment of a tyranny was found by assuming the character of a demagogue who declaimed against the wanton insolence and cruelty of his own order and perhaps by exhibiting evidence of their wrong-doing obtained the grant of a bodyguard who acted as his instruments in the sequel of his enterprise the founder of the great athenian tyranny was pisistratus whose mother was as we have seen a cousin of the mother of solon his father hippocrates traced his descent back to nellius the father of nestor a branch of the great pillian family was said to have settled in attica and their pedigrees and alliances are given with an elaborate precision which goes for nothing when genealogies equally elaborate exhibit the same names and connections which leave no doubt of their shadowy nature the value of the list of elian kings must be measured by the name of endymion the plunging sun the child of protogenea the early dawn the darling of selene the moon and the husband of asterodia who like ursula with her great company of virgins has her path among the innumerable stars represented by her fifty daughters 
intermarriages with the family of Melanthas might be adduced to explain the claim of affinity with Cadras, which Pisistratus is said to have made. As in the case of Solon, so in that of Pisistratus, the date of his birth cannot be fixed with any exactness. We can scarcely suppose that he would be less than two or three and twenty years of age before the breaking out of the second war with Megara for Salamis, if, as we are told, he had then acquired influence enough to turn the scale in favour of the election of Solon as general. If so, he must at the time of his death have been much more than ninety years of age. In any case, he was a much younger man than Solon, who was attracted by his great personal beauty, not less perhaps than by his manifest abilities. A strong feeling of friendship sprung up between them, which is said to have betrayed the power of that terrible sentiment, which went far toward poisoning the sources of Greek social life. In the Second Megarian War they were united in military enterprise as in affection, and Pisistratus seized the port of Nisaea, while Solon was busied in the island of Salamis. During the time of Solon's reforms and legislation, we hear little of Pisistratus beyond the expression of Solon's opinion, that apart from his overweening ambition, Athens had not a better or more able citizen. The fact that he remained thus comparatively obscure may be taken as proof that we are approaching the limits of trustworthy history. But our actual knowledge of the career of Pisistratus and that of his sons rests altogether on oral tradition. Half a century had passed after the death of Solon, before the tyranny of the Pisistratids was finally put down, and this event again preceded by a few years the births of Herodotus and Thucydides. In dealing with the history of this time, Thucydides claimed to speak with authority solely on the ground that he had carefully sifted the testimony of those who professed to be acquainted with the story. There is always a likelihood that a tradition which satisfied so keen and impartial an inquirer as Thucydides may be substantially correct, but this accuracy cannot be regarded as extending to details. It has been well said that the history of the Pisistratids is very much like many portions of Roman history, where the most minute narratives are for the most part unhistorical, while the indefinite statements are more correct. There is little to be added to the account already given of the internal state of Attica after the return of Solon from his travels. It is possible that Pisistratus may have attached himself to the Hyperacrians or men of the hills in order to throw a veil over the fact that he was really attracting to himself a more formidable body from the poorer class of the citizens. This seems to have been the opinion of Herodotus, resting on the story which he goes on to relate. Appearing in the Agora, supported by a large gathering of people, he declared that he had had a most narrow escape from an attack of his enemies the partisans of Lycurgos, or Megacles, who had fallen upon him in the country. As evidence for this, he pointed to wounds which, we are told, he had inflicted on himself and on his mules, and besought the Athenians to grant him a bodyguard to protect him from the violence of his opponents. According to one version of the tale, 
his request was granted as a reward for his services in the war with Megara forty years before. According to another, the appointing of the guard was proposed in the public assembly and carried by Ariston in spite of the earnest opposition of Solon. The men told off for this task served at first with clubs for their only weapons, but the clubs may without much difficulty have been exchanged for spears. However this may have been, they took, we are told, an active part in carrying out the plan of Pisistratus. Rising up with him, they seized the Acropolis. The city lay at their mercy, and the tyranny became an accomplished fact. His partisans amongst the commonalty, that is, amongst the non-tribal citizens, must also soon have discovered that Pisistratus had made his compact with them only to break it. It is impossible that they should have helped him on the road to power, had it not been that they looked either for an extension of freedom, or for better safeguards for it, or for relief from some glaring wrongs by which they felt themselves oppressed. Having made himself master of Athens, Pisistratus, we are assured by Herodotus, introduced not one single constitutional change. He neither disturbed the privileges of the Eupatrids, nor interfered with their administration of law. So doing, he acted in the judgment of Herodotus wisely and well. But if so it be, he must have been charged with the breach of covenant by his followers, who were convinced of their folly only when it was too late. Pisistratus had in truth sufficient discernment to see that he could not on the whole have a more convenient instrument for his designs than the constitution as modified by Solon. The worst wrongs under which the great body of the people had suffered had been lightened or removed, and the ruling class at Athens were no longer regarded with the odium which attached to them in many other Greek cities. Pisistratus clearly had no wish to call down this odium on himself. His wish was to do all that could be done for the improvement of the city and the benefit of the people at the most moderate cost. Thucydides speaks in so pointed a way of the family relations of the Pisistratids as to warrant the inference that he was himself personally connected with them, and although his commendations of them are very marked, he has never been charged with distorting facts in their favor. When, then, his opinion is in close agreement with that of Herodotus, we may fairly allow that the credit of wise statesmanship belongs to them, and from Thucydides we learn that with no direct impost beyond an income tax of five per cent, they found means to carry on wars, to pay the costs of public festivals and sacrifices, and to embellish the city. Among the public works carried out by this dynasty was the decoration of the fountain of Caleroe, and the setting up of the statues or pillars of Herms in various parts of the country. The gigantic temple of Zeus Olympias was begun by Pisistratus, but it was destined to remain unfinished down to the days of the Roman Emperor Hadrian. End of Section 4《5 of Lives of Greek Statesmen by George William Cox》This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Pisistratus, Part 2. 
with a true instinct pisistratus saw that his power would be most surely strengthened by fostering the religious enthusiasm of the people a pan-athenaic festival had already been celebrated yearly but he resolved that a festival of the same name and on a vastly more magnificent scale should be held once in every four years this greater festival was to serve as the crown of the religion which bound together the ionic tribes as the common centre for the highest developments in art in the drama in painting in sculpture and in music an altar to the twelve gods and another to apollo in the pythian temenas were according to thucydides among the works achieved by the grandson of pisistratus athens was thus fairly advancing on the road to imperial splendour but in spite of these efforts for the higher education of the citizens the course of despotism was not destined to run smoothly for pisistratus for reasons already explained the sentiment of reverence for kings had never been very strong among the greek tribes it was perhaps less powerful at athens than elsewhere and therefore a stronger dislike in the abstract for irresponsible rulers would go along with a considerable indifference to the risk of their falling under their sway the common greek sentiment as to the distinction between kings and tyrants must have been of comparatively late growth and in its origin it must have been oligarchic rather than democratic according to this feeling the hereditary king whose authority was traced from ancestors older than the oldest tradition was deserving of all reverence and at no time was the greek wanting in due respect for the despots of persia babylon or sardis but the man who had made himself absolute at the expense of an established political order was to be treated like a wolf who had broken into a fold of sheep and was to be hunted down without mercy of course the organized state thus overthrown could only be the eupatriate or patrician government for which alone it was possible to claim a religious sanction making all violation of it a sacrilege it was not improbably for this reason that on the uprising of pisistratus the athenians treated with so much coldness and indifference the imprecation or curse of solon in the eyes of the old gomeroi or landholders a tranquil watching of the issue would seem an offence scarcely to be pardoned for the non-tribal citizens and for the hecatomorians who had just been suffered to plant their feet on the threshold of freedom this was not quite so obvious a truth the hope that having obtained something they might through pisistratus obtain a little more would tempt them to show him a fair field even if they yielded him no favour the disappointment of this hope would bring with it no slight danger for the permanence of this tyranny and such in fact was the result a coalition between the people of the plains the Padiaioi, and those of the sea-coast the Peraloi, was followed by the expulsion of the despot possibly during the year after his usurpation but this banishment only proved more clearly the absence of any ruling spirit and the alcmyonid chief megacles resolved to cut short the state of anarchy 
by offering to restore Pisistratus on the condition that he should marry his daughter. The terms were accepted, and his restoration was rendered the more easy by a sight which it is implied was taken by the people to be nothing less than a manifestation of the goddess Athena. According to the story of Herodotus, the conspirators obtained the services of a woman named Phaia, belonging to the Paeonian tribe, whose height and beauty seemed to be more than human. Placing this woman in a chariot, they made proclamation that the people should make haste to welcome Pisistratus, whom the goddess herself was bringing back to her own Acropolis. Hurrying to the scene, they saw a majestic female form six feet high, and taking her for Athena, gave her worship and received the man whom she was restoring to his lost power. This woman is said in some versions of the tale to have become the wife of Hipparchus, the son of Pisistratus. But the whole story is treated by Herodotus with a profound contempt, which seems to imply the existence of a general unbelief in his day, that manifestations of the gods could any longer take place. If we choose to apply a strict criticism to the narrative, we might question the possibility that a woman of such commanding size and beauty could remain unknown to a society so small as that of Athens, or even as that of Attica. But it is difficult to measure the stupidity of a mob, and all that we need say is that politically the stratagem seems superfluous. The union of two factions had brought about the expulsion of the tyrant. The adherence of either one of these two to Pisistratus would at once restore the balance in his favor. But the Chilonian curse, which rested on the house of Megacles, cast its shadow on the mind of Pisistratus, who resolved that the marriage which he had been compelled to contract should be a barren one. And the discovery of this purpose led, we are told, to a reconciliation of the Alcmayana chief with Lycurgos, and to the second expulsion of the despot, who spent ten years in exile, sojourning chiefly in the Euboean Eritrea, and among other tasks, helping Ligdamus to establish his tyranny in the island of Naxos. The service rendered to these and other cities was rewarded by large contributions in money, and on the part of Ligdamus, with more active help. When, in the opinion of Pisistratus and his sons, the time had come for making another attempt to seize the scepter which had been wrested from them. This second restoration is represented as due to the same cause which had led to his first success. The main body of the citizens now, as then, looked on the drama which was being enacted before them with lukewarmness, if not with indifference. Pisistratus occupied Marathon without opposition, and when on his moving from that place an attempt was made to bar his way to the city, the Athenian leaders allowed him to fall upon their forces while some were dicing and others sleeping after their morning meal. Riding towards Athens, Hippias and Hipparchus told the citizens whom they met what had happened and bade them go home. The order was obeyed without hesitation, and for a third time Pisistratus was master of the Acropolis. But he had now resolved that no such combinations as those from which he had suffered should ever again be formed against him. 
Megacles went into banishment with his followers. His other opponents were compelled to give hostages, whom Pisistratus placed in the hands of his friend Ligdamus, the despot of Naxos, and the introduction of a band of Thracian mercenaries into the city enabled him to set his enemies at defiance. Having thus definitely established his power, he went on to secure the favor of the gods. This task he achieved partly by purifying the island of Delos, in other words, by removing all the dead bodies which had been buried within sight of the temple of Apollo, and partly also by an act at Athens which he may have found even more congenial. He leveled the houses of the Alcmyonid tribesmen and cast the bones of their dead beyond the borders of Athenian territory. For Pisistratus himself there was to be no more interchange of disaster and success. No attempts were made to disturb him in the possession of his power. He died despot of Athens three and thirty years, we are told, after his first usurpation in 527 B.C. We need not doubt that he was twice driven out and twice brought back but beyond this we have seemingly no means of definitely fixing the chronology of his career. We cannot tell when his first expulsion took place, or how long it lasted, nor can we determine the interval which passed between his first restoration and his second banishment. It is not a little to his credit that we hear of no change in the general character of his government after his second restoration. Unquestionably, he knew that any attempt to introduce at Athens the license of Oriental despotism would be an act of political suicide, and he may have felt that his real ends would be gained more easily by affecting to fall in with the popular humor rather than by ostentatiously going counter to it. We are told that once he even allowed himself to be summoned for trial before the council of the Areopagus, but if he appeared before their tribunal he would be accompanied by his bodyguard of Thracian mercenaries, and the certainty of acquittal is a significant comment on his parade of obedience to the letter of the law. The story of the sons of Pisistratus can scarcely be separated from that of Pisistratus himself. They are both of them links in that chain of real causes which brought about the invasions, first of Darius and then of Xerxes. These true causes may be traced with perfect clearness through the narrative of Herodotus, but though the historian is fully conscious of their importance, they are altogether distinct from that series of religious causes or sequences in which, with some occasional misgivings, he had on the whole a deep and immovable faith. But in the relations of the Pisistratids with other tyrants and subsequently with the Persian king, we have that full explanation of events which is needed to make them as intelligible as any incidents of our own time. And we see how thoroughly then, as now, the movements of the people and those of their leaders or oppressors are determined by influences which have nothing to do with the traditional religious belief or the exploits of their mythical heroes. The example of Pisistratus was not thrown away, we are assured, on his sons. Impressed by his statesmanlike sagacity, they showed themselves not less sober and moderate in their rule. 
It is not, however, from Thucydides that we receive a story which seems to run counter to this favourable judgment. But Herodotus relates a very dark tale of the murder of Cimon, the father of the celebrated Miltiades, by their emissaries at night. Cimon had been thrice victor in the horse race at the Olympian festival. On his second victory, instead of giving his own name, he proclaimed Pisistratus as the conqueror. For this compliment, the despot who had banished him from Athens brought him back under a pledge for his personal safety. His third victory seems to have awakened the jealousy of Hippias and Hipparchus, and he was assassinated by their order. This story, if it be true, would show that irresponsible power was tempting the sons of Pisistratus into the usual paths followed by tyrants. It carries us to the bullies and bravos of the days of the Stuarts. But if we believe the tradition, the deed which led to the overthrow of the dynasty was one which has been morally proved against James the Sixth of Scotland. In an evil hour, Hipparchus tried to form with the beautiful Harmodius the intimacy into which James wished to decoy Alexander Ruthven. The issue was different. The guilt in either case was the same. Unable to carry out his design, James added murder to impurity and blasted the reputation of a high-spirited family in order to preserve his own. Greek sentiment and manners brought about another sequel in the case of Hipparchus. The fears or the wrath of Aristogeiton, the lover of Harmodius, were awakened by this attempt on his paramour, and the end was precipitated by an insult which Hipparchus, from his wish to show the indignation which he felt at his own rejection, offered to the sister of Harmodius, having invited her to take her place in a religious procession as one of the canophori or basket-bearers, he dismissed her when she came as unfit for the service. With a few of his partisans, Aristogeiton determined to await the great Panathenic festival, feeling sure that on seeing the blow struck, the main body of the citizens would hasten to join them. But on the day of the festival, the conspirators were amazed to see one of their number, talking familiarly with Hippias, and hurried to the inference that they were betrayed. They were, however, resolved that the man who had injured them should die. Finding Hipparchus at the temple of the daughters of Laos, they killed him there. Harmodius was slain on the spot by the tyrant's guards. Aristogeiton, for the moment, escaped. Hippias was at the suburb of Karamaikos when he heard the tidings. With singular presence of mind, he commanded the hoplites, or heavy-armed soldiers who were to take part in the procession, to lay down their arms and go to a spot which he pointed out. Soldiers always so piled their arms before listening to any harangue from their general, and these men looked for such a harangue from Hippias now. But the arms were seized by the Thracian mercenaries, and all citizens found with daggers were regarded as sharing in the conspiracy. Aristogeiton was put to the torture, and the same measure was meted out to Laina, a woman belonging to the class known as Hetairai, and brought into prominence by the miserable sentiment which in Greece led to the seclusion of free women, 
and to the almost complete alienation of husbands from their wives. Leina was the mistress, according to one tradition, of Aristogeiton, according to another, of Harmodius. From neither Aristogeiton nor Leina did the torture succeed in extracting any confession, and the story ran that rather than betray those whom she loved, Leina bit out her tongue. At Athens public opinion would allow no memorial to a woman of her class, but the memory of her devotion was preserved, it is said, by the statue of a tongueless lioness set up in the vestibule of the Acropolis. Hipparchus had been struck down, 514 B.C. Hippias remained despot of Athens for four years longer. But the character of his rule, as we learn from both Herodotus and Thucydides, had undergone a thorough change. It was now marked by much suspicion and harshness, and by the murder of many citizens, until the Alcmyonids, aided by a Spartan army, drove him from Athens to lay plots elsewhere for the recovery of his power. Such in its general features was the story of the expulsion of the Pisistratidae, and of the two great historians who have dealt with it, one was animated by a marked friendly feeling for the tyrant and his family. But even Thucydides was compelled to show his countrymen how strangely popular tradition may deceive. The current belief that Hipparchus succeeded Pisistratus as being his eldest son, and that the dynasty came to an end when he was smitten in the Laocorian, was in fact a mere delusion. The popular song, hallowed with the myrtle wreath, the sword which by slaying the tyrant had given back equal laws to Athens, and the popular sentiment acquired strength by appealing to the honours and the immunities from all public burdens granted to the descendants of Harmodius and Aristogeiton. In spite of all this seeming evidence to the contrary, Hippias was the eldest son, and far from ceasing to rule when his brother died, he only exchanged the whip for the scourge of scorpions. But the circumstances attending the death of his brother and the state of popular feeling which followed had at least impressed Hippias with the prudence of providing the time against the evil day. His thoughts turned naturally to the Persian king, whose power after the fall of the Lydian monarchy by the overthrow of Croesus had been extended to the shores of the Hellespontus, and who had thus become the lord of the Athenian settlement at Sigeon. The fact that Athenians were thus established at the entrance of the strait may sufficiently explain the embassy which came to Athens from the Thracian tribe of the Dalonchians, who then inhabited the Chersonesus. But here, as elsewhere, the religious causes at work were in the judgment of Herodotus of a very different kind. According to his story, it was the Delphian god who, when the Dalonchians besought his aid in their distress, counseled them to introduce into their territory an Hellenic colony, and to take as its leader or oikistes the man from whom, after leaving his temple, they should first receive hospitality. This hospitality they sought in vain until they reached Athens, where they were kindly welcomed by Miltiades, the son of Kypsilas, a man well known already as a victor in the four-horsed chariot race at Olympia. 
with him the Dalonkians did not plead in vain mild though the rule of pisistratus was miltiades chafed under it and having the sanction of the delphian god he readily sailed with a body of athenian citizens to the Chersonesus, where he received from the people the power and title of tyrant dying childless this miltiades left stesagoras the son of his brother cimon heir of his power and wealth miltiades had engaged in war with the people of lampsacos stesagoras followed his example and was murdered by a man of that city on his death his brother miltiades the future victor of marathon was sent out by hippias as governor of the athenian colony maintaining himself here by the aid of a body of mercenaries miltiades married the daughter of the thracian chief alaros but the course of events had taught hippias that it was far more to his interest to be at peace with the lamsacines than at war hippoclos the despot of that city was in high favour with darius the persian king and though in himself a lamsacine might be an object of contempt to an athenian yet under the circumstances hippias was glad to give his daughter archidice in marriage to the son of hippoclos Sigeon, he thought might in the event of his being driven from athens be a safe refuge for himself and in the tyrant of lamsacos he would have a friend through whom he might gain personal access to the persian sovereign End of section five. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.